Well, my name is Janice Wood. I'm so pleased to be with you this morning. I'm one of the pastors around here. And uh, we are in the middle of a series called Building a Home. Uh, Our pastor launched this series by talking about the blueprint that God has for our life, right? That God is the one, you know, some of us can't even read a blueprint, not your problem. You don't have to read a blueprint. Just know there is one. There is a blueprint for your life, right? And, uh, and, and you may not know the whole course of how that's going to go. The next uh, week, we talked about the foundation and the idea of making sure that our foundation is Jesus Christ. That is the foundation, the cornerstone that we should be building on. Today, friends, we are gonna, we're going to bring up the walls. There's nothing better in a building project than when you raise the walls. So we're going to be talking about walls a little bit uh, today. If you're following along in your Bibles uh, or your devices or online, we're going to bounce around a little bit. We're going to be starting with some Old Testament prophets, Isaiah and Amos. So um, let's get right into the scripture. So you can, I see some people turning head to, uh, to Isaiah 28 and Amos 7 is where we're going to be going. You know, there's a problem when you're building walls if you don't get them straight. And it's interesting to me that we teach toddlers this. A lot of times we give children blocks to play with. You ever seen a toddler stack blocks on top of one another? Depending on how straight they organize the blocks depends on how tall they're going to be able to make their structure before it falls over, right? So we all know this premise of how important it is to make sure that our walls are straight. This is Isaiah reporting to the nation of Israel from God that God is displeased with a few things, and this is what he says. I will make justice the measuring line and righteousness the plumb line. Hail will sweep away your refuge, the lie, and water will overflow your hiding place, right? In Amos, God talks to Amos, and Amos says this, this is what he showed me. The Lord was standing by a wall that had been built true to plumb with a plumb line in his hand, and the Lord asked me, what do you see, Amos? A plumb line, I replied, and then the Lord said, look, I am setting a plumb line among my people Israel. I will spare them no longer. Now, I had a father who liked to build things. He was a professional builder. He was a farmer, but uh, he liked to build things. He built onto uh, the existing house that we had and, and built something larger than, than where we lived. What we lived in became the garage, and he built that when I was small. He built, you know, sheds and outbuildings, and I loved to watch him pl- lay block. I declare if I had another life, I would love to be a mason. You know, I think it's kind of like frosting a cake, you know, watching him slap that stuff around. It was really fun. But I loved his tools, and I loved the tools that had everything to do with making things straight. Okay? So my favorite tool in his toolbox uh, was his levels, a little line level or sometime a little bit bigger, a level this long, or maybe a four-foot level. And who doesn't love a tool with bubbles? You know what I mean? I mean, there's a, if you don't know what a level is, there's a bubble in there, and, and that helps you know is something. And you, some of you need this. You've got pictures hanging in your house that are not need a level, right? Go get you one. And, and make sure that things are horizontal the way they should be. And again, it's gravity with that bubble, making sure it's right in the lines where it needs to be. I loved levels. Another thing I loved was his, um, his uh, an L square. I don't know what you called it exactly. He has a what? A framing square. My husband knows. A framing square. All I know is I wasn't allowed to play with it very much. I think he was afraid I was going to bend it and knock it out of skew. But it made the best right angles. Oh, my goodness. When he was cutting stuff, and he has a smaller square too. But I loved really square angles. I loved geometry. That made lots of sense to me. And then my favorite tool of all time, and we didn't use it much, a chalk line. 
Oh man, how many of you have ever gotten to play with a chalk line? And my favorite thing about a chalk line was the beautiful blue chalk. Oh my goodness, it was like, it was periwinkle blue. It made me think of that, my favorite crayon in the 64 count, you know what I mean? And the 64 count Crayola, it was called periwinkle. And, and that blue chalk, so the string is wadded up in this chalk, so it's all blue. And then you pull it out and he would let me hold it at the, whatever location I was, and I would hold my finger on it, and he would go wherever he needed to be. And, and then we would stretch it super tight, and if I really behaved myself, he'd let me snap the line. And if you snap the line, you got that perfect chalk line, and it was just amazing. It looked a little bit like that last scene where the stuff is going everywhere. Um, it was great. Well, those are all fabulous tools for making things straight, level, horizontal. There's also a need to make sure that things are vertical. And when you need to make sure that something is vertical, God talked about in this scripture a plumb line. Have you ever seen a plumb line? I made sure they still made them. Right? They still, you can get one at Lowe's for five bucks. Here we go. As a matter of fact, I went and got this specially here, and, um, and I decided I would give it to the first person who asked me for it in case you need a plumb line and, or, or just a souvenir from the message. First person who lets me know you want it at pjanis at vineyardrichmond.com. It's yours. All right. But you have to come get it. All right. Here's a plumb line. It's a weight. It's just a weight, and it has a point at the end, and it works so sophisticated on just gravity. Right? And this is a perfectly vertical line from any angle because it's gravity. What is it that we gravitate to as we're building our lives? See, if I, if I put this down on the foundation that is Jesus Christ, if I make this the cornerstone, and now my life and my home is going to be built straight on this foundation. If I'm not building on Jesus and I'm building over here, guess what I'm building? An outhouse. I'm not building a home, I'm building an outhouse. Now, the outhouses have use, right? Maybe you need to, there's business to be done there. Maybe you're building a shed for your lawn tractor. I don't really know, but it's not where you live. You need to live in a home that you have built on the foundation of Christ and kept it really straight and square. A plumb line, think about this. This simple tool, thousands of years ago in scripture, and they still make it at Lowe's. That's incredible. My husband wasn't around as I was preparing. He was in a meeting, and, and, uh, and I had a few questions about plumb lines, and so I thought, well, goodness, I have a son-in-law in the construction business. I'll just call him, and he took my call, which is exciting because he's a busy, busy guy too, and uh, so we talked a little bit about the whole thing, and I, you know, I just wanted to know if they still made plumb lines, and, or a, a plumb bob, I guess is what you call the end of it, and, uh, and then he was real quiet for a minute, and so politely he said, um, we use lasers now. <laughs> like, okay, I get it. But, but still, right? This is still a tool that will work. Yes, you can go get yourself a laser at Lowe's as well, and that will do the trick, all right? But here's the point. Number one, walls must be built to plumb, must be built true to plumb. And in order to build a truly straight wall, we have to agree on the foundation, we have to agree on the foundation. Now, this past year has demonstrated to us that we have been in such social discord with people, haven't we? People that you thought, oh, I like those people. We agree about everything. And you discovered this year you do not. 
right? You don't agree on a whole lot of stuff. And the reason we don't agree on stuff is because we're not building always on the very same foundation. As a matter of fact, so much disagreement, social disagreement has come because I trust that news source and you trust this news source. How in the world do we think we're going to arrive at the same spot? We're not. If I'm building on this foundation and they're building on that foundation, and we can maybe go very tall and straight, but we're never going to meet. We're never going to be twin towers, but you're never going to meet in the middle. Some people are like, well, I, uh, this is my version of history. And some people are like, well, no, I learned a different version of history. We're not even, a, we're not even talking about the same basis, right? And perhaps my favorite one is the whole idea of the Bible versus science, as if they are at war with one another and can't possibly be the same. If as a Christian who follows Jesus' teachings, you then must be living by Jesus' teachings in the New Testament. But someone who doesn't agree that Jesus died and was raised to life for their sins is not possibly going to agree with you on a whole bunch of stuff because they're not following the teachings of Jesus. As a matter of fact, if you happen to agree with someone who is not a believer, it is a happy accident. <laughs> It is a happy accident that you do that. We should not be distressed if we do not come to the same conclusions as people who are not building on that foundation. They're not building plumb. There are some people attempting to build on the foundation of Jesus, but like a toddler, things are getting out of skew. And sometimes we need a plumb line. And we may have to take a few blocks off and bring it back down and straighten this thing back up. That's okay. And that's, Jesus is saying he's going to have to do that. So, much of our society, let's talk about the last one, much of our society wants to base their foundation on science. We are enlightened now, we are educated, and I've heard people say, well, the church is anti-science, they don't like education. Can I just say I'm not anti-education? <laughs> you, there is nothing in education to frighten you. You are never going to learn something in science. You're never going to learn something that is true that will conflict with Jesus and his teaching, because he is true. You're never going to learn anything there that if you learn something that disagrees with Jesus' teaching, something's wrong. Something is off in one way or another. I went to college late in life. Um, I was a stay-at-home uh, mom for years, and I decided to go back and work on my degree when my kids all got to school, and I found out I had a little bit of time. And uh, one of my very first classes was biology because I was silly enough not to take it in high school children take biology. You'll have to do it again. And, uh, and I hated biology. But anyway, I was in there and this very old science teacher, a professor, came in. Very old. He's probably my age at this point. But anyway, he, he walked in. He'd been teaching for a really long time. And, uh, and I will never forget what he said. He said, all right, students, he said, uh, this semester I'm going to be teaching you a bunch of lies. And I was like, well, I'm so glad I paid tuition for this because that's not what I thought I was going to be learning. And he said, here's the deal. I've been teaching biology for 30 years. And can I just tell you that what I taught my first students 30 years ago is no longer true. I'm virtually certain that what I teach you today in 30 years more will not be true because science continues to learn. God continues to reveal himself through the physical world in ways that we latch onto and we think we're so smart. And all we're doing is connecting more dots that God has given us. And so if you are building your life on science, can I just suggest to you that it is shifting sand? 
Building your life on scientific discovery is shifting sand. Not because it's wrong, it's because it's incomplete. Not because it's wrong, but because it changes as we discover a few more things. So it's very good to say, this is what we know so far. This is the size of molecules that we can see right now. This is what we know. These are the hypotheses that we have. But when science gets really concrete and tries to tell us things definitively that differ from who God is, something's off and something will be discovered at another time. Science changes as God reveals or allows us to discover more of his creation. There's nothing to fear from that. There is nothing to be discovered that will contradict his teachings. But God is the rock and the foundation, not science. Proverbs 2, 2 through 6 says this, Turning your ear to wisdom and applying your heart to understanding. Indeed, if you call out for insight and cry aloud for understanding, and if you look for it as silver and search for it as hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. Do you notice that God is not at all afraid for us to find out stuff? He's not afraid of that at all. In fact, he tells us to do it. He's like, search, call out, look, listen, apply your heart. But goodness, just read some of Solomon's teachings and you will find that you can go deep, deep, deep into science and it is unfulfilling without Jesus. Without Jesus, it is ultimately unfulfilling. Here's the deal. God created everything scientific that we know absolutely everything. John 1, 1 through 3 says this. Some of the scripture will show up, some of it won't. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, was with God, and the Word was God, and He was with God in the beginning, talking about Jesus. Through Him all things were made, and without Him nothing was made that has been made. I also love the encounter that Job has with God, and this is one of the earliest, oldest. Job is, is chronologically out of line in the way our Bibles are organized. Job is one of the very oldest texts in the Scriptures that we have compiled in the Bible. And in Job, he has a really long conversation about the hardship that he's going through. And finally, in the last five chapters, God speaks up, and I love how he talks to Job. He says in verse 38, verse 3, stand up like a man and brace yourself. Some versions say, brace yourself like a man. I love that. I will ask the questions and you will give the answers. Where were you when I founded the earth? Tell me if you know so much. Do you know who determined its dimensions or who stretched the measuring line across it? Or what were its on what were its bases sunk and who laid its cornerstone? And he goes on to list all of the beginnings of science, things that were surely beyond Job's understanding for that time and day and discovery. See, God was there at the beginning. Here's the other reality about God. God can break through the laws of physics that he set up anytime he wants. And he did it in Genesis, and he did it in Exodus, and he did it in the Gospels. Anytime there is a miracle, anytime there is an act of God, a wonder of God that defies the physics of our scientific world, that's God. And God has the ability to do that. Ecclesiastes 3.11, he has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. We're getting a little bit of it here and there, but we can't fathom the whole thing. Daniel 2.22 talks about how he gives it to us. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness and light dwells with him. The foundation of science is God. 
That's where that all ends up. So you don't have to be afraid of science. And, and God has never been anti-science. In spite of the fact that God will heal people, do you know that in the Old Testament, he sent Isaiah to the King Hezekiah and he said, use medicine for your wounds. God could have healed him supernaturally, but he said, use medicine. Who has discovered medicine? But somebody who researched it, somebody who did some scientific study. Do you know that two books in the New Testament were written by a doctor? Luke wrote the book of Luke. Luke also wrote the book of Acts. Those are written by a very precise person who studied and looked into the physical world. We don't have to be afraid of science. As a matter of fact, the definition of science is this. The state of knowing. According to Merriam-Webster, the state of knowing. A system of knowledge concerned with the physical world and its phenomena. And who is all-knowing? but our God. So science is just what he has revealed to us at a particular time and in a particular place. So nothing we discover in science conflicts with how Jesus invites us to live and follow his teachings. And yet, when we look at things like abortion and homosexuality and all of these things that have to do with what we think are scientific discoveries, we kind of do a little hand-wringing and we're like, well, what's going to happen if they tell us that God made people this way? What are we going to do if we discover that you know, people were born with a particular instinct or, or an attraction toward a same gender? What are we going to do about that? No big deal. Even that, although that isn't true, even that would not conflict with Jesus' teachings about how we live with impulses that we have, right? Purity is the same plumb line. Purity is the same plumb line for any person who is not married, whether they have opposite attraction or same attraction. Sexual expression is reserved for a man and a woman in marriage, the end. So, the scientific origin of any of our impulses, the impulse to overeat, the impulse to punch someone in the nose, I have that every now and then, the impulse to cheat on your taxes, the impulse to cheat on your spouse, the impulse of a same-sex attraction. Guess what we're supposed to do in those cases? It's called restraint right? Those are, those are sexual, those, not all, these are sinful impulses that we may be drawn to. And no matter what the science is behind them, whether somebody decided that they are genetic or acquired matters not at all. It does not conflict with Jesus' teachings. We don't have to wring our hands about that. We are predisposed to sin. All of us are predisposed to sin. And so we all come to Jesus as we are, so that he died on the cross for our sin. And with the power of the Spirit and with the help of community, we resist the impulses that we have. Because number two, walls are a restraint. Walls are a restraint. Walls must be built plumb, but they are also a restraint. Now, that's, an, that's a bad word in our society because we don't like to be restrained from anything, right? We just, we don't like that. Let me tell you about how God interacted with a prophet in the Old Testament by the name of Eli, who had sons. Eli was a priest who was in charge. He was kind of the head priest. He was in charge of everything going on in the temple. And his sons came up underneath him, and he, they also did things in the temple. But they were doing things inappropriately. 1 Samuel 3, 11 through 13. And the Lord said to Samuel, See, I'm about to do something in Israel that will make the ears of everyone who hears about it tingle. And at that time, I will carry out against Eli everything I spoke against his family from beginning to end. For I told him that I would judge his family forever because of the sin he knew about. 
His sons blasphemed God, and he failed to restrain them. The sin he knew about, and he failed to restrain them. And again, restraint's a word we don't like. We just got through celebrating the 4th of July. We like to believe that we are the land of the free and the brave, and we, are, and we have absolute freedom in this world. Can I tell you, you do not have absolute freedom. And frankly, this entire nation was not even built on freedom. All it was built on was a resistance of an, of an authority on a faraway island that they didn't want anymore, so they exchanged the authority of a faraway island king for the authority of everyone in the land. So now instead of one person telling you all what to do, everybody tells each other what to do. That's what democracy is, right? That's what a republic is, is now we're all going to tell each other what to do. But you're not free. You're only as free as society allows you to be. And guess what? A few things that society won't let you do. You cannot run into an airport and yell fire. Well, I thought we were free. You are free. You're free to go to jail for that right? We have systems set up. You are you're only as free as society has deemed that that's an appropriate behavior, right? This is not the Lord of the Flies. We don't get to do whatever it is that we want to do here. There are lots of things. Every single society frowns on certain things, and a lot of them have to do with your personal property rights, right? There are almost every society frowns on assault, <laughs> Almost every society frowns on stealing. Almost every society has rules about property. Even if it is collective property, misusing collective property is a no-no. There are rules about that. So, so we have these controls. All societies have social controls. We're not free. That's, and crime and deviance are never tolerated. There are restraints set in place. So sociologically, we are predisposed to cooperate, set limits and restraint for certain behaviors. These are walls. These are walls. So, what are the walls that you need to have to build a strong family whose foundation is plumb with Jesus Christ? Well, I would suggest to you that if you are a new parent, you are very familiar with the word restraint. Because if you have a baby in a hospital, you're not getting that baby out of that hospital until you have a PhD in car seats. Right? Car seats are nothing more than restraint. Years ago, you know, babies were bouncing all over cars, right? And so I, I don't know. Now we're like, no, they got to be in one place and we got to lock, and, and, the, and the speed limits are lower. Go figure. But you know what I mean? We've decided that that was a bad plan. So now, and, and good luck to you if you don't have a new car, you have an older car that isn't set up for all of that, that apparatus. I can't even operate them. You know, if I'm going to cart my grandchildren around, somebody else is fix, figuring out the car seat situation. And I think somebody posted recently, there's nothing stronger than a toddler who doesn't want to get in a car seat. Are we right? I, I think you did that. I mean, oh, I mean, but we know we have to do it, right? We have to build restraints. Why do we do that? We restrain infants because they cannot restrain themselves. They don't know what's best for them. So we have to do, that for, do it for them. When I was a very young mother, I had a two-week-old baby. One of them, I won't tell you which one because you'll worry about them. But I had a two-week-old baby. <laughs> And we were too poor to have an official changing table, so I had a little dresser that was maybe three or four feet off the ground. And, um, and my two-week-old baby lifted legs and, and just toppled onto the floor. They apparently are, you know, no worse for the wear. But I learned very quickly that they can't help themselves, right? You have to restrain infants because they cannot do it themselves. As children, we physically restrain children ourselves. Now, we're beginning to teach them restraint. So if you have a toddler and, you know, and getting up into the single digits, you better have a system, and hopefully it's a voice command that makes them pay attention, right? If you're a super good parent, you can just lift an eyebrow. 
You know what I mean? Did you ever have parents like that? They lift an eyebrow. You knew what you had to do, right? But in this case, it's like, you know, you have a voice command. There's traffic. Come here. And if they don't do it, guess what you're going to do? You're going to snatch them up by the arm, and you're going to pull them out of harm's way because that's what we need to do as parents. We need to have walls of, of restriction to keep them from danger, Right? There are things that we're beginning to teach them about self-restraint at that point. When you have children, it is important for you to teach them not to say everything that comes into their little mind. Right? When my husband and I were raising children, there were quite a few things that our children were not allowed to say. And I'm not just talking about profanity, because they didn't really learn that in our home. But you know what children learn right away? They learn, I hate you. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. You will not say that in our home. You are not permitted to say that. You can think it all day long, but you cannot say that, right? We're going to teach them to be polite. We're going to teach them to restrain themselves. We're going to teach them to manage their own anger and their feelings. I'm not telling them to stuff it in some weird way, but there is a way that we behave in society because there's a lot of places people aren't going to put up with that. So we teach them. We begin to teach self-restraint. As they get a little bit older and you have adolescence, you continue to encourage self-restraint, right? And you begin to set up limits. Goodness, if you have adolescence and you don't have any limits on the internet or their screen time, I'm praying for you, right? That's rough. That is rough. I didn't raise my children in that era, but you all are. And you're going to have to figure out what those limits are. Not because you're, you're being mean, but because you are restraining them in ways that they need to be restrained and teaching them at the same time what is self-restraint. You begin to let out those apron strings a little bit. We had a parenting uh, workshop thing here a few years ago uh, that we called Parenting Un- Unplugged. And, we, and there's just a lot of raw material about how do we raise children in this troubled time. And we, we had someone come in and do... Uh, a thing on drugs and just how prevalent drugs are and some of us were naive to that and, and it was just good to know what was out there and, and afterwards I asked the, the man who presented it I said so you have a small child what are you know do you have any worries about your children growing up and becoming enticed in the drug culture and he said not, not really and I said what makes you think that they won't what is it that you what's the primary thing that would enable a child to resist the drug culture and I will never forget his response he said, I think we need to teach our children delayed gratification. Delayed gratification. We teach them that if you want something, you might have to work for it. That we're going to go somewhere, but it's not right now. You want to say something, but you're going to wait. You're not going to interrupt. All of those things that are delayed, teaching them a little bit of time, it's really it's teaching them self-restraint. When you teach someone self-restraint, then they can resist some of the things that are presented to them out in the world. And then finally, as young adults, uh, parents, i got to break it to you. At some point, you have to sit on the porch and let them go. At some point, like the prodigal son's father, we sit on the porch and we wait on them in anguish, in patience, in grief, and we let them go because now they're outside our walls outside our walls. Now, that's, that's been extended greatly, right? Because people are waiting longer and longer, and they actually leave our home, but we're still responsible for their shelter and their care, and you're still footing all their bills, all right? And I'll tell you this, as long as you're footing any bill at all, you have say. The minute they're not accepting any money from you or any shelter from you or any care, they're on their own. You've done your parenting. 
let them make their choices and pray for them to return. Because here's the deal, age determines explanation. When you're building these walls, the age of your child determines how much explanation you give them. At five years old, you don't need to explain yourself. You do not need a discussion, you need a because I said so. It has to be that simple, that fast, because they don't have any controls on their own. As they get a little bit older, maybe by the time they're 15, you can begin to explain. So like, listen, this is what's gonna happen if you do that, so I'm not gonna let you. I'm determined to continue to protect you, but I'm explaining that if you run in traffic, you're going to get hit and smushed like a bug. That's what's going to happen, so I'm not going to let you do that. By the time they're 25, you're saying, listen, this is how you're going to ruin your life, and I can't stop you anymore. I hope you don't do it, but, but that's what's going to happen. It is our responsibility as parents to restrain children, not only from dangers, but from sin but from sin. It's not lost on me that God punished a prophet for not restraining his children. And these were older children, frankly. Eli knew what they were up to, had a conversation with them, and didn't do anything about it. Here's what it says in 1 Samuel 2, 22. Now Eli, who was very old, heard about everything his sons were doing to all Israel and how they slept with the women who served at the entrance at the tent of meeting. So he said to them, why do you do such things? I think it's pretty obvious why they're doing such things. I think that's the silliest question I ever heard. Why are you doing such things? I hear from all the people about these wicked deeds of yours. No, my sons, the report I hear spreading among the Lord's people is not good. He had a conversation, but he didn't go any further, and he didn't do any kind of restraint. Folks, it can't be that way. It can't just be about public image. We have to be willing to step in when we are still responsible for what our children are doing, or in this case, reflecting on the ministry that he was a part of. They, at the very least, needed to have been removed from ministry, and he was unwilling to do that. Number three, walls are a protection. Walls need to be built plumb. Walls are a restraint, but they're a restraint because they are a protection. When you're building walls in a home today, right, everything is about the insulation, how, how sturdy those boards are, about how much insulation that they can, uh, can hold for you, how sturdy they're going to be. Here's what happens when we don't have those. Isaiah 5, 4 through 5. What more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Now I will tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge, and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall, and it will be trampled. When we refuse to build walls, when we refuse to build hedges because we're living in some open concept life that we're just like anything goes, and it doesn't matter, when we refuse to do that, whatever's inside will get trampled. Whatever's inside will get destroyed right? We must set up hedges. When Joe and I are doing um, marriage counseling or we're doing workshops, we spend an entire day on this topic. We spend an entire session just talking about the hedges that need to be set up in your spiritual home, in your household to protect what is on the inside. And yes, we are trying to keep some things in. Have you ever been in a house where the door was open and somebody yelled, quit letting out all the bought air? Yes, there are a few things that we're trying to keep inside of a home. And it, when you're hedging something, it's super important. One of the first hedges you have in a marriage is a wedding ring. When people are wearing a wedding ring, that lets you know that they're off limits to everyone else. Right? That's your very first hedge. It's an alert. It's a little bit of a flag that you're putting out there. 
Joe and I also found, after years of, of marriage, that we heard about this thing called the Billy Graham rule. We didn't know what the Billy Graham rule was, but we discovered that we had been living it for years, for a couple of decades, just out of common sense. And what that means is that we refuse to meet with someone of the opposite gender in a social setting without a third person present. Even if it wasn't our spouse, there had to be at least three people. We did not hold business meetings and with one person alone. We didn't have business lunches. We didn't go to coffee with people alone. We just didn't do that. We definitely didn't meet in a closed office with somebody alone. We didn't do that. We always made sure there was a third person there to protect our reputation and to protect the reputation of the person there. Now, these days, that's considered old school. Oh, you're just not allowing people to move, move up, and it's some sort of restriction on women. Can I tell you it is not a restriction on women? If it is a restriction on women, it's a restriction on, man, uh, on men. For women to say, well, I don't have an opportunity to meet with Pastor Joe by himself, then I'm, I can't advance. Well, somebody can't meet with me by themselves. Big deal. It's not a gender-specific situation. It's that this is not healthy, right? We are allowing for the fact that we know we could fall, so we are setting ourselves up to make sure that we don't. Now, it will get you in trouble in the real world. Here's how it went for me. When I was working on my uh, graduate degree, I had to meet with my directing um, professor to go over my third chapter. It was going to be a lengthy meeting. He had, it was on sabbatical that year, so he had no office privileges. He had no place to meet on, on campus and no parking privileges, so he didn't want to even go and meet in one of the main rooms. He said, how about if we just uh, meet up at Panera Bread? And uh, I said, okay, I can meet you at Panera Bread. I said, but just so you're aware, I'll be bringing along a silent partner. He said, what? I said, well, I'll be bringing along somebody to sit with us. I said, I don't meet with anybody of the opposite sex alone out in public in a social, anything that could be deemed a social setting. Um, and and, and uh, he threw a fit. He told me how off-putting that was and how much I must think of myself that he couldn't restrain himself in my presence and how little I thought of myself that I wouldn't hold myself back from him and how, and how I would never be hired at any university in this state because of that. And I said, well, I'm very sorry. I said, but my husband and I have maintained this for 24 years of marriage and we're not going to stop now. If it costs me my degree, it costs me my degree. And he agreed to meet. He was a little salty about it, but we did. And I said, you know, my husband's a pastor and he doesn't meet with women alone either. And he goes, well, I can understand it if you're a pastor. Apparently, pastors have lower morals than everybody else. I don't really understand what he meant by that, but it was like, you got to be kidding me. No, you will catch flack in the real world because we think we're above it all. You know what? When we owned a business, a, a coffee shop in Richmond, and it's not Purdy's, we don't own that, but years ago, we had a coffee shop, and we watched marriages destroyed as people met together for business. Nobody sets out to have an affair. It happens because they get familiar with one another and they didn't keep up those hedges. We must hedge our relationship. Another way that we do it is we have unfettered access to each other's socials and computer and phones, everything, right? I know all of his passwords. He knows all of mine, or he should, but sometimes he forgets. I have them written down for him. <laughs> Okay? So he has access to everything. We don't erase stuff on our phone. He doesn't erase stuff on his phone. I don't erase on mine. We can see everything. You know why? Because we have trust. Absolute trust. And if you find yourself having conversations with someone when your spouse is not around, you're having conversations after your spouse has gone to sleep, you know you're getting into dangerous territory. Stop that. You know you're getting into dangerous territory. Put a hedge around those relationships. Good walls create trust.
Walls keep things in that should stay in, and they keep things out that should stay out. Strong walls are good boundaries. Good boundaries. Now listen, I'm not talking about confinement. I'm not talking about trapping somebody in a closet and keeping them away. I'm not telling you to put your children in the basement and to isolate them to save them from this terrible society. I'm telling you, you insulate them to what is out there. You set those boundaries early so that when they go out into the real world, they know how to build their own walls and they know how to keep those plumb with Jesus Christ. The other night it was raining. And uh, when a storm's rolling in, my husband and I love to sit on the porch and drink coffee and watch the storm roll in. And I thought, the reason I feel safe on my porch drinking coffee when a storm is rolling in is because I have strong walls behind me. And I can run inside out of the rain anytime I need to. A strong wall does not mean that you never go out on the porch. It means that you know what you keep in and you know how to keep what's inside safe. And you know what you allow to come in your doors. This is how we build strong walls on a strong foundation. Folks, we have people up here who are ready to pray with you. I don't know what God's been saying to you over the course of this message or maybe the previous ones that we've had in this series. Maybe God's doing a work in your heart and you know there are a few places that you need to just, you know, build some better hedges. Maybe you know there's some places with your children that you would like to shore up. Maybe you see your walls getting a little out of skew and it's time to bring them back in plumb with Jesus. If that's you this morning, you can come up during this last song, find somebody who looks friendly, and they will pray for you. Let's come to our feet, and I'm going to pray for us as we go into that. God, I thank you for this day. I thank you for your word. I thank you for the message of your word. Father, I thank you that the truths of the gospel still hold after all these years, thousands of years after these prophets wrote, God. These are still strong words that are truths for us. God, we need to build strong homes in this society, in this conflicted, divisive society. We need to build strong children, strong families, strong marriages. God, Give us the willingness to humble ourselves, see where we need to readjust, and to align ourselves with your cornerstone. In Jesus' name, amen.